I'm Lieutenant Joe Pangaro. I've been a cop for 27 years. I like to say I got a backstage pass to life. Well, guess what? I got some tickets for you. So come on in, pull up a chair, turn up that volume, and let's go. Chasing Justice is on. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to our time together here on Chasing Justice. All right, so you hear a lot of papers shuffling around in the background here. Today, we could talk about topical stuff, and there's a lot going on. There's an election going on. There's lying going on. There's stuff going on all around the world. But we do have a unique phenomenon in America. It's not limited to America, but it is much more prevalent in America, and that is the incidence of active shooter events in our schools. So I know we've talked about these kind of things in the past. I've done a lot of work for various magazines and other media outlets about active shooters. I teach and train about surviving an active shooter event, preparing your staff. You know, businesses. Are you a business? You work for a business? Do you have training? I mean, real training, not watch a video. I know a lot of places have here. Watch this video of, uh, of how to respond. And, you know, some of them are good, some of them are not, but you need more than that. And that's what I do, right? I teach that, I train that, I train schools, businesses, religious facilities, summer camps, any place people gather to try and keep them alive. Uh, I, I try and help them do that. But recently, we have had uh, the Department of Justice has put out their Critical Incident Review, also known as a CIR. Now, a CIR is an aftermath review where you have a team of investigators, with specialized training, knowledge, etc., and they go back and they look at an incident to try and really pull it apart to help us understand what actually happened, not what different people say they saw or heard or what they say they did or didn't do, whatever. Because those things, not necessarily purposely uh, incorrect, but they certainly can be incorrect because of the reality that different perspectives when something happens. Where was somebody? What was their responsibility? And then you have the purposeful. Uh, gee, people did things wrong and they don't want to suffer the embarrassment. They don't want to suffer the consequences. And when it comes to active shooters in our schools, we, we can't allow the purposeful uh, disinformation to get out there. So now this was done by the Department of Justice. Now we know here on America Out Loud. We know that there's a lot of concerns about the Department of Justice and how they're dealing with political things. And I understand that, but not every single person there. We're talking about the leadership is very political. The people who do the work, the attorneys, the investigators, all those people in the DOJ and all the adjunct agencies, the FBI, DEA, uh, Homeland Security, all those people, they're, they're good men and women trying to do the right thing, but you have to do what your boss tells you. And if that's the political will, you have a choice. You can walk away from your career and your job, or you can do what they tell you. And I'll tell you, it's an easy thing to say, well, they should do the right thing and just disregard their bosses. Well, do you do that? Your boss tells you, you, you I don't think that's right. You do what you want to do? No, right? I don't want to get into a whole topic on that. But the reality is here, the people who did the, do these critical incident reviews, there is a potential for them to be biased in certain areas of the reporting. It depends on who writes the report, right? So the investigators do their investigation, compile the information, and then the person who's putting out the report, the finalized writer, may be someone who has a, a bias towards one thing or another. So when this originally came out a couple of weeks ago, I heard 
a representative from the attorney general's office speaking about the report, and they gave some details from the report. And I said, okay, it's a, it seems pretty reasonable because I've done a study of Uvalde and Sandy Hook and Columbine and all these other places to build my my knowledge, my knowledge base of this these type of attacks so I can help people prepare for them. And I thought the, the briefing was pretty good. The information was good. It, was, it matched up with what I already knew from the original Texas uh, House, of, House of Representatives report that came out uh, a while ago. And this was further information. This was finalized. They had done the complete review and now they're putting out the report. So it covers timelines. It covers the people involved. It covers who did what specifically. And they investigated it, I think, pretty clean. What at the end of the briefing I heard on the radio, the representative of the AG's office made a pitch for gun control. Now, I didn't like that. Okay, you can you can you can not want any guns. You can not like guns. You can be a, a Second Amendment person who understands the value of guns. But the reality is, I didn't like the fact that they tucked that on the end of their press release conversation that they were having. Uh, that you know, no child should have to you know suffer from a military weapon. Well, an AR-15 is not a military weapon. It's based on the, the uh, on a military weapon, but it's a 223 rifle. It's like any other rifle, only it looks scary, okay? Uh, anyway, I, I don't want to get off into the weeds on that. So when I was thinking about this, because I've done other reviews of school-based attacks, and I'll probably go into them more in detail uh, in the next couple of weeks. I'll probably pick one one, one a week maybe or one every couple of weeks and try and go over it to educate everyone out there on what goes on in these events. Right? And, and the reason that I do that is I had a, a person I'm very close with, very intelligent, and we were talking about criminal uh, investigations because that's, you know, that's what I did for years. I was a criminal investigator. And we were talking about the John Bonet case. And this person had listened to podcasts and had listened to people talking on the radio about what happened with John Bonet and this and that. And I used the John Bonet case in my criminal investigation course to teach about um, criminal investigation. And this person was, oh, no, this happened to John Bonet and that happened to John Bonet and her father did this. And I said, where did you get your facts from? Where did you get this information from? I heard it on a podcast. I heard it on this or that. I said, well, I heard podcasts too about the John Bonet case. And the person who put it on there was a young woman in her 20s, uh, had really no understanding of the case, didn't read the autopsy reports, didn't understand anything about it. And she was basically repeating all of the myths that are out there. Well, these school shootings have lots of myths in them as well. And, and I just wanted to, to make that connection here is that that's what happens when you have a, a, a major incident like this, normally you got to keep this in mind. When an incident first is reported, when it first happens and you get your first uh, media attention on it, normally the information is wrong because there's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of, um, a lot of information that's coming in. It's coming from different sources. Uh, and in the Uvalde report, you can see how, how difficult they, of a time they had. Number one, getting the information out. Number two, doing the right thing. So we got to keep that in mind when there is a next one and there will be there always will be because we're not dealing with the mental health issues. We're not dealing with things properly. And, uh, you know, I don't pretend to have all the answers, but I know there's lots we could do that we're not doing. So think about your child's school, your grandchild's school, 
your children's school, uh, what do they do? And I asked already about your workplace. What does your workplace do? Do they do anything legitimate to prepare you besides tell you watch a video and figure, oh, well, it'll never happen here, which is the most dangerous statement anyone could ever make. But people make that statement all the time. And that's what I'm fighting against. Right? Get a threat assessment. Have somebody come in like me, come in and look at your facility and determine where your security gaps are and then tighten them up. So before we get into the report, I wanted to, you know, I was saying I saw a, a video, a movie the other night um, and it starred, I can't think of the actor's name, John Boy Walton from the Waltons, John Boy, a famous actor and I'm sure, sorry, I can't think of his name. Um, and it was done in 1990, I think. I think the movie was from 1990. And it says, uh, I think it's called, I Can Make You Love Me. It was a movie about a horrific incident that happened in California where at an office building where a guy fell in love with a new employee and then stalked her and ended up coming back and shooting up the place, tearing up very, very violent incident. Uh, and I was I, I was drawn to this movie because this is my business. I look at this stuff. But in 1990, that was nine years before Columbine. And Columbine really changed the way in which law enforcement respond to active shooter incidents. Prior to the incidents after Columbine, uh, up to Columbine, is that we did the surround and drown thing, right? We surround the building and then you send in cops slowly and they do things. And what we're so used to now today is this uh, active shooter response where the first cop on scene runs in, goes to the sound of the gunfire, and at their own peril, goes in there to try and stop the shooter, arrest them, contain them, or apply deadly force to stop them. That's, that's what goes on. And when I listen to this, when I watch this movie, when I watch this movie, uh, I Can Make You Love Me, John Boy Walton and... Um, Oh, I'm trying to think of a young lady. And again, I don't know why I'm having a, a brain cramp here. She was the Jordache Jean girl. She was uh, all over the place. Uh, very, very famous. I'm going to have to look this up because it's going to drive me crazy. Um, I can make you love me. Let's see. I can make you love me is the movie. All right, here we go. Brooke Shields. Sorry about that. Um, it's the stalking of Laura Black is really the story. Laura Black. Uh, it says here it's a 1993 made-for-TV psychological thriller. Richard Thomas, okay? Richard Thomas, who is John Boy. Really different. If you ever, if you grew up watching that show and then you see him in this movie, I mean, they changed his haircut a little bit. They changed his whole look. Really actually did a great job of acting like a psychotic uh, active shooter guy. Um, but that was really the... That was really the thing that drew me to this movie is that since this was in 1993, which was six years before Columbine, the police used the old fashioned tactics, even in the movie. And, you know, for most movies, when they involve police or military, they get someone from that field that can be an advisor and tell them, well, here's how a cop would do this. Here's how a military person would do that, whatever. So I know that they had one in this film. And what happened is this guy, he was he fell madly in love with this young girl that started working at his office and he had no criminal history prior to that he had been in the military he was a he had a high clearance for this company secret clearance because he did government contract work and he fell in love with this girl laura black and he started to pursue her hey uh want to go to dinner hey want to go here hey want to go and she wasn't interested but she was nice new job she's trying to be polite to everybody 
and he keeps pursuing her. And then he starts showing up at her aerobics classes. And then he starts showing up at restaurants where she's at. And he, start, he shows up at her house. He's giving her packages. He's leaving notes on her car. And she finally tells him, listen, I, I, I appreciate it. I'm not interested. Leave me alone. And this guy gets more and more aggressive in what he's doing. So finally she goes to HR. And this was funny too. When you, when you look at it compared to today, here's this young woman and she goes into HR and she says, listen, this guy that works here is, is following me. He's, he won't leave me alone. He's sending me notes and uh, he's, he's showing up at my house and this and that. And the, the response from the, from the person in HR, and this is based on a true story. This actually happened. Um, the HR person says to her, well, did you smile at him like that? Do you smile like that all the time at people? Then maybe they get the wrong idea, which is so contradictory to how we see things today. You know, this was kind of like blaming the victim. Well, what did you do here to cause him to follow you around? Did you lead him on? Did this? And because you're watching the movie, you know the backstory. You know she didn't do any of that. This guy was just, um, he, he was crazy about following her around. He wanted her and he would not take no for an answer. Finally, it got to the point where HR brought him in for an interview and he basically told him, if I lose my job, I'll probably kill myself. And if, uh, if I'm going to kill myself, I'll, I'll probably kill some of you too because uh, I can't take that kind of uh, thing in my life happening to me. And um, that scared the HR person really, really badly. Um, it kind of made it, it, it kind of brought, I think her, um, it brought her some understanding of what this girl was going through. Uh, and realizing that there was something here. Well, in the movie, of course, this guy buys all these weapons and then he shows up at her at her place of work because he, get, he did get fired and that's what I think set him off. But he went in and he starts shooting at the front door and he's asking questions like, is the glass protected? Is the glass safe? To asking this of other employees that work there and setting up his attack. So he does, uh, he does show up at the building and he starts shooting and he kills a lot of people and he even shoots this Laura Black girl and he thinks she's dead so he leaves her there uh, and he ends up talking with the cops now it was so funny this is the part that I'm going to compare the active shooter of today uh, Columbine Uvalde and this movie what it was portraying that it was portraying a pretty close scene of what happened at Columbine the way the police reacted at the time and you remember six years before Columbine took place and we learned a lot of lessons from that the police basically surround the place the cops, first cops on the scene show up and they don't go in. And there's a commander on scene, some captain guy. He looks like he's detective captain. He's calling the shots. And there's some, you know, patrolmen all around and, and they're like, uh, what's going on? Well, apparently he shot somebody. There's a guy dead right over there and he's in the, and you can hear gunshots. Ba-boom, ba-boom. He's shooting all over the place. And he says, well, we're not going in. It's too dangerous right now. The SWAT team is on the way, which is how we used to handle things. Uh, we would call the SWAT team, surround and drown. And then the SWAT team would go in. So that was really a, a, an interesting movie to watch, to see how the tactics of the day really did match what we really did out in the world. It was after Columbine that we realized that we cannot wait for um, SWAT teams because SWAT team in most places, unless you have one on duty, like New York City has emergency response uh, on duty all the time, they're ready to go. They can respond however long it takes to get anywhere in the city and they have multiple teams. Well, in your rural communities or even suburban communities, uh, it would take half an hour to 45 minutes to gather the members of the team, get their equipment, and arrive on scene at a location. So 45 minutes, is 30 minutes to 45 minutes, it's all over. 
statistics tell us that a real active shooter event like the one in this movie, uh, now that dragged on a little bit longer because they were negotiating with the guy. They never went in. It was it was it was crazy. People were calling. Uh, saying, help me, I need help, I need help. And the cops outside are saying, well, we can't go. We, we're not going in there. It's too dangerous. People will get hurt, which is a lot like Uvalde when we found out that there were kids in the school calling for help saying he's shooting people and the police didn't go in. So I hope th that understanding, as I'm trying to give you that juxtaposition of the two events, and, and the Laura Black incident was real. It was a real event. And the movie was based on it. And apparently it seemed to follow... Uh, pretty close to what happened in real life. But the fact that the cops outside at the Laura Black incident said, well, we can't go inside. It's too dangerous. Guy's shooting all over the place, so we can't send people in there. Compared to what we do now, the first cop on the scene, the first good guy or good girl gun on the scene is supposed to go into the building at their own peril, find the shooter, and engage them, right? Arrest, contain, or apply deadly force and stop them from killing people. And in Uvalde, it was like a throwback uh, to, to what happened previously. So I just wanted to give you that background. If you, if you want to see that movie, if you're a person who deals with this or have concerns about it, go see that movie and see how different the world is today. Um, I, I can make you love me. Richard Thomas and um, Richard Thomas and our, how can I forget this guy, you know, this girl with the, uh, with the jeans, right? Remember her name? Uh, Brooke Shields, yeah, right? All right, so that's the, that's the groundwork here I wanted to understand. We'll spend a minute now understanding when Columbine happened and how it changed. Uh, after Columbine, we realized that we can't surround and drown. We have to immediately go in and engage the shooter. And that was new training. And it was hard for me as a law enforcement officer because we were, no matter what people think about the cops, police are not trained to shoot and kill people, right? Uh, that's what They just want to go in and kill people. They just want to go in and shoot people. And that, that's not what police are trained to do at all. Uh, they're playing, trained to not shoot, you know, restrain, 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 everything, everything until there's nothing left to do but shoot. That's the real training. And the idea of an active shooter response changed the paradigm because at this point we recognize that once we have one of these incidents taking place, whether it's an adult or a kid in a school, uh, they are not there to negotiate. They are not there to uh, talk about their problems. They are there to kill people, as many as they can, and in most cases, there's a crossover to suicide. So they're going to take people out and then take themselves out. So we started to see that these kind of incidents is not a place for negotiations, not a place for surround and drown, not a place for slow response to the building. You have to get there and get in there quickly. Otherwise, you're going to lose everybody. Uh, now, remember our timeline. SWAT team arrival in most places is half an hour to 45 minutes. And we started to find out that when these events take place, usually by 15 minutes, everyone who's going to be dead is, including the shooter. It's that quick. You know, 10 to 15 minutes, it's all over. So we had to change our, our, our training. We had to change our dynamic. We had to change our thinking. And this is what I'm telling you was difficult for law enforcement. You've got these young men and women. They're heroes. They come out and they want to help people. You know, that's what everybody says in their interview. I want to help people and help my community. I want to do the right thing. And then... We teach them to use restraint, you know, uh, of force, uh, the, the use of force continuum. Uh, you can only use so much force necessary to do, uh, achieve a, a, a legal goal, right, a lawful goal. Uh, and we, we, we pound this into the heads of law enforcement constantly. Only use the force necessary. 
It doesn't mean you have to get beat up. It doesn't mean you have to get stabbed. It doesn't mean you have to get shot. You're allowed to overcome that force with only the next level. So if somebody refuses to put their hands behind your back, you're allowed to grab them. And you know, you see all these people on TV, don't you touch me, don't you touch me. Well, guess what? If you're not following a legal order on the use of force continuum and I'm placing you under arrest and you don't comply, I can now grab you and put you in handcuffs. You see, so we got this whole twisted way of looking at the world now that the cops can't touch me, you can't touch me. Well, if you're under arrest, yes, they can touch you. As a matter of fact, they can use force to overcome uh, your uh, your uh, rejection of being arrested, right? So if that means verbal, you don't want to turn around, I can turn you around. I can handcuff you. If you fist fight, I can fight back. If you, uh, I can use a, a patrol baton or something like that to stop you from hurting the officer. Uh, if you pull a knife, the officer can use a firearm. You see, so you go up the continuum. And we had to learn from these events that we can't go slow anymore. We have to go fast. So you have to be a fast response. Uh, to get into the building. So it used to be the first four officers. After Columbine, we law enforcement as a community thought about this and said, okay, what are we going to do? All right, the first four cops that show up, you got to go in and go find that shooter, right? Arrest them, contain them, or stop them. But the part of stop them was what was new to law enforcement. Stop them meant those three things. If they see you coming and they surrender, you arrest them. If they run and hide in a building and they're locked in a classroom or an office, they're contained. If they continue to use uh, guns or, or weapons to kill people, you apply deadly force as, as a response. So if you run up and there's a kid and he's shooting a gun and he's shooting at people, you shoot him to stop him, right? And again, we don't shoot to kill. You shoot to stop the threat. And that means applying that deadly force. And hopefully, uh, maybe you shoot them and they get injured and they go down and drop the gun and the shooting's over. Most times when you shoot somebody, uh, they will die. That's unfortunate, but that's a sidetrack. That's not the purpose is to kill them. You're not an executioner. You're there to stop the violence, and you do that by applying force to the person, and if they die, that's unfortunate, but that's what happens when you get shot uh, by a gun. All right, so that's the whole concept behind all of this. Uh, we found after a couple more school shootings that waiting for four officers was not necessarily the best answer, that that might be inappropriate because you, you, it takes time. You know, how can you get four officers together in a smaller community? They might be tied up on other calls. They're in headquarters. In the meantime, the clock is ticking, right? So then we realized, okay, um, we have to go faster and faster and faster until now the standard pretty much everywhere uh, is the first good guy or good girl gun on scene goes in to find that shooter, follow the sounds of the shooting, go to that shooting, arrest, contain, or apply deadly force and stop the shooter. And when I say this was new training at the time, it was. Because you gotta remember, we teach people not to be violent, not to hurt people, to use limited force. And now we're telling them, then you go in, your first option might be to apply deadly force to a person, whether that's a teenager, an adult, whoever's doing the shooting, that might be what you have to do. And that is different. And if you're on the outside world, you're civilian, you're not in there, and you just have this thought in your head that, oh, cops just, uh, they're taught to kill people. No, they're not. Um, that, that chain training was so different as we came across uh, what to do in the early 2000s, how to respond to these shooting events. It was completely different than anything we had been taught prior to that. So that's why we're gonna look at this Uvalde report and you're gonna see uh, if you compare these events, which one should you look at for good and bad? 
uh, and there was good in in a lot of them. Some some bad instances. Where you go. The Nashville Covenant School shooting was. Uh, if you can go see the video, go go online and look for the video of Nashville Covenant School shooting and watch what the cops did in that video. It is textbook response of what you would want your officers to be trained to do. It was absolutely it was perfect. Um, you know, you can you can nitpick along the way. They should have went faster. They should have did this. They should have did that. They went very quickly in a very dangerous situation where people, somebody was shooting a rifle, killing people. Uh, they had to jump over dead children to go there, see? So just get out of your mindset and start thinking how law enforcement has to deal with this. They're still human beings. But if you watch that video, there's body cam of this video. You can see, I think it's Officer... I think his name is Officer Rutledge. I might be getting that wrong. He was absolutely amazing leading that team through that building to confront that shooter and then eventually uh, dispatch the shooter and stop the event and, and protect everybody else. Excellent. That's a good example to look at. And we'll go over that one in, in one of these episodes. But when we look at Uvalde, there was so much that went wrong. And there are so many lessons here for, well, some for the schools, but a lot for law enforcement. And that is why I do reviews of like this. And that is why the Department of Justice did their review. And we're going to go over that report uh, when we come back from our break here. We'll go through that in detail. And I'll give you some specifics of what happened and some ideas of what they could be doing. All right, so that's, that's really the crux of our little get-together today. Um, right now, I'm going to tell you about the, some stuff that's on the on the platform because you go look at it. First of all, go to americaoutloud.news. Go there. Go to that website. You will see a whole new, a whole new place to go, a whole new landing pad. Uh, you can go look up the individual shows, the hosts. You can read the columns. A lot of my columns are on there. You can go find them. And now you can comment. Right? So you're listening to this show and you say, hey, Lieutenant Joe, you're full of garbage. You can go on there and you can make comments. And if I see them on there, I'm going to respond to you. All right, so you get, a, you get a response from me. Maybe, maybe you like what I say. That would be good. But if you don't, uh, you can go on there and say you don't like it, you do like it. You can add your opinion. Right? So we can have an actual conversation about what's going on. The other things you can do is you can look up the, the bookstore. Right? My books are on there. There's all kinds of other, other people on the platform have, uh, have books. And you can go pick them off right there at the bookstore. So it's, a, it's an amazing uh, update they did to the website. All right? Now, there's something on there too. Healthy cell products. Right? I talk about them all the time because I actually use them. I use the Immune Boost product. It's uh, helped keep me healthy, helped make me feel well. Uh, normally, I get lots and lots of sinus infections. Haven't had really any in the last three years, and that's the only thing different is that I've been taking Healthy Cell. All right, so Healthy Cell. They also got one if you're having trouble sleeping. Right? They want to help you sleep. Uh, I have a cousin that takes it, and he's poor guy has trouble sleeping. Not anymore. And then they have one focus factor. This helps you to uh, pull your thoughts together, think more clearly. And we all know there's people in our lives that are, you know, they're stunad. They can't put two thoughts together. Well, the, uh, this product, uh, Focus Factor, might help them. All right, so go take a look. They're on the platform. They're everywhere. Uh, healthy cell products are awesome. All right, well, I think at this moment, I'm going to go take a break. You go take a break. We'll get back together in a minute, and we will go over the Department of Justice report, um, what they saw as a critical incident review of the Valley School. 
cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death and disability. Lifestyle changes are critical, but you can also support your heart with concentrated nutrients. Healthy Cell created heart and vascular health to support cholesterol and blood pressure with CoQ10, vitamin K2, resveratrol, and soluble fiber. And Healthy Cell's not a pill. It's a patent-pending gel you swallow. Get heart healthy. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 25% off. Millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of the toxic spike protein. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed their spike support formula to counteract harmful spike protein from COVID-19 and vaccines so you can feel your best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Cofix RX Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flu, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. Many voices, one freedom, united in the First Amendment. Our goal is to herald the voice of genuine liberty at AmericaOutloud.news. A place where you'll find the naked truth expressed with a patriotic heart. Now is our time, my fellow Americans. America Out Loud Talk Radio, liberty and justice for all. All right, everybody, welcome back. Okay, so safety and security is a big deal. Understanding what went wrong. Lessons learned are the things that can help all of us. Lessons learned is is a concept that I've had a lot of people say to me, well, what's the big deal of looking at what happened at, you know, place X? Because that might not happen at place Y. Well, I guess individually, you would be correct. You know, what, what happens at, at the Acme company is not going to happen at the, uh, the, the Borax company, right? But the reality is when you look at them all overall, you start to look at many of these kind of events that take place you can start to see patterns. You can start to see commonalities. You know, we're talking about the commonality of doing something, the commonality of attacking a location. So in the beginning of our get-together get today, I talked about the, uh, the movie, uh, I Can Make You Love Me, and how the guy did a little bit of uh, planning, and he, he leaked. You know, there's leakage involved also. He was asking people questions about, is that glass bulletproof? Uh, are those doors bulletproof? Can you get them open? And, you know, he was asking a lot of precursor questions to an attack that had anybody had any idea what he, what he was talking about, had they been trained properly, they would have said, hey, that's strange. Why would a guy ask a thing like that? Let me go talk to security or push it up the line a little bit and say, hey, this guy's asking questions about shooting out the glass, you know, and they would have put together maybe 
gee, he's disgruntled, he's having problems, he made threats, now he's talking about shooting out the glass, maybe we need to be a little more proactive here. So lessons learned help us when we look at a bunch of lessons. So one of the things that we see, and we'll see it in this report, and you see it in other reports of school shootings, or any place where someone comes to attack the facility, is do they have easy access to get in? Right? One of the most basic things. Remember when schools, the doors were open and you just walked in the front door and you went into the office and you said, hey, I want to talk to the principal or can I I'm here to see my kid's teacher? Do most of our schools allow that anymore? No, they don't. One of the first things they did was realize we have to slow people down from getting in. If they have access to us, they can hurt us. So we have to slow them down. And one way we can slow them down is to lock the doors. Now, of course, you have somebody approach the building with a weapon and the door is locked and they shoot the glass and the glass drops. Well, that happens in almost every facility where a door is locked and somebody wants to get in and kill people. They shoot the glass and then they go in, right? So we learned from many examples that we have to protect that glass. Well, how do you protect the glass? We either you remove it and put in steel, which nobody wants to do because it doesn't look nice. You put in bulletproof glass, which is extremely expensive and that's hard to budget for. Or you put the safety glazing on it. It's made by a bunch of different companies. It's crystal clear. It's kind of like a plastic for, for a better explanation. It's applied to the door and there's an adherent that's put on it so that you can shoot through the glass, but the glass doesn't drop. It takes two to three minutes for a big guy with a sledgehammer to knock the glass. In two minutes, you know you're under attack, right? So we learned that from lessons learned. We learned we have to close our doors. We have to protect our glass. What do we do? What do we do? when they announce themselves, either by shooting at the glass or uh, attacking someone and coming in, we've learned we have to secure our personnel, our people, students, workers, everybody. We have to lock down. We've learned we have to figure out how to lock down, right? We have to understand what is the process of locking down. Then we find out like from a Sandy Hook where the teachers had to go into the hallway with a key and try and lock their door. And meantime, there's a guy shooting at them with a rifle. So that's not gonna happen. You lose your fine motor skills and you're not able to lock a door. And then we see the tragedy that resulted. So lessons learned in an individual case, uh, you could compare school to school, business to business, but the reality is all of these attacks have a commonality is that you have someone coming to hurt people inside the building. And how do they get access? What access do they have once they're inside? How do the people call for help or protect themselves? What do they do? So there's a lot of commonalities. And that's why looking at lessons learned is so important. All right, so that's the kind of thing that I do. It's the kind of thing I teach, I lecture about. It's the kind of thing I go out and help companies and businesses. I just did a, a huge media company in New York. I went to their facility, absolutely beautiful. They put in a lot of security. And I went around with the idea of, if I wanted to come in and hurt somebody, how would I do it? And I produced some ideas for them and they closed up all them gaps. Their building is now much, much, much safer than it ever was before. And it's, uh, it's because they had someone bring to them some ideas that maybe they don't think about, right? Even if you have your own security personnel, uh, there's, there's often sometimes a pushback. Like when they find out I'm coming, they think I'm there to, you know, point out where they're wrong. And, you know, your security person doesn't know what they're doing. That's not what I do at all. That person is my, is my ally in this. I'm there to help them look with an outside set of eyes at what they're doing and what do they have in place and how does that compare to best practices in the modern world. Uh, they may have 10 things they put in to protect their building, but they're outdated. 
because there's ways around them. People have done attacks in other places to get around whatever they have in place. So I give them new best practices. Here's what's on the market now. Here's what's happening now. Here's what you can do now uh, so that you can protect your people. So that's really the whole idea. So I'm going to see if I can find this document now and we can go over it. All right, so the Department of Justice, if you look this up, you can go online and look this up. Uh, the Critical Incident Review, Active Shooter at Robb Elementary School. It's a lengthy document. It's uh, 600 and something pages, but they do knock the timeline down to moment to moment of what happened, so you can understand that. But in the beginning here, they give you a, an overview of the factual observations. observations. So I'm not going to read line from line because that's boring, but I'm going to give you a little information and then we'll discuss what it says. And then we're going to go into some of the things that they talked about. All right, so at 11.33 a.m. on the morning of May 24, 2022, the subject, because they don't mention his name specifically, they say we're not going to mention his name, we're not giving glorification, which is a big thing out there. Uh, these people sometimes now do seek to be the next big shooter, uh, as exemplified clearly by Nicholas Cruz, the shooter of uh, Parkland. He did a video where he said, hey, my name is Nick and I'm gonna be the next school shooter. He was trying to get that notoriety. So in this document, they don't mention the name of the shooter, nor do they mention the name of the victims. They call them victims or survivors. And I thought it was, it was very uh, empathetic of them because they described that some of the victims may have survived, but they feel like they were victims. Uh, and some of the other people feel like they're just absolutely survivors, whether they were injured or not, or they escaped. So their, their wording is interesting. All right, so at 11.33 a.m. on the morning of May 24th, 2022, the subject entered Robb Elementary School equipped with a high-powered AR-15 rifle. He immediately started shooting and within a minute entered the classrooms 111 and 112, which were connected via an interior door. Okay, so one of the things we know that when I said that information initially comes out is not correct. Well, we heard immediately that the doors were propped open. You know, the teachers were at fault. They propped the doors open, and that's how this bad guy got in there. Well, when you find out, uh, as, as it went on further and further, and the investigation took place, we found out that the doors were not propped open at Uvalde School, uh, at the Robb Elementary School. What they were was unlocked. You see, so when I talk about the most common things we need to do is to lock our doors, and then we find out that almost everybody knows that and they do it, there are still instances all the time where people leave the door unlocked, they forget to lock the door, the locks aren't working, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So when I do a threat assessment and I go out into the field where there's a business, a school, whatever it is, uh, I get there before anybody else arrives and I do what we call Lieutenant Joe's coffee walk. Get my cup of coffee and I walk around the facility looking for open doors and windows. And almost always, I find my way in. Even when I talk to people in advance and tell them, hey, I'm coming out next week. You'll never get in our building, Lieutenant Joe. It is locked up tight all the time. And then I get there and I'm usually sitting in either the principal or the, uh, the business owner's office when they walk in with my cup of coffee. And they're normally shocked. They say, how'd you get in here? Oh, well, through your unlocked door, unlocked window or whatever. It's not a matter of being... Um, I, I don't want to say stupid, but it's a matter of complacency because the most dangerous thing any of us can ever say, no matter what facility we have, is that, well, it'll never happen here. And you know what? You know why I call it the most dangerous thing in the world? Most dangerous thing people can say? Because people still say it to this day. 
I will call somebody and we start talking about their facility and, and they say, well, you know, I get it. We should probably do an assessment of some kind, Lieutenant Joe, but you know what? In reality, it's never really going to happen here and we don't have the money to spend on an assessment, you know, but we'll put in some more cameras or something. And I say, well, it's it's a good idea to, you know, make sure your equipment is up to date and you have the best equipment, but an assessment is the very first place you start. You get an assessment to find out where your security gaps are, then you close them, right? And it, it could be, the reality is this. This is, this is just the truth. If anybody gets into your facility or your school and they do anything violent and they hurt anybody, kill people, whatever, there's gonna be lawsuits and you're gonna end up in court and the first thing the court's going to say, could you imagine that this would happen in this day and age? And your answer has to be yes. Everybody in the world knows every facility, every place people gather is at risk. And they would say, okay, well, if you knew that, what you do about it? Well, we couldn't afford a threat assessment, so we added some cameras and we talked to our people. You're going to add zeros to the end of all the checks that you're going to write, as opposed to getting an assessment and then starting to work on it. See, I give people a roadmap. Because sometimes I tell them they need equipment that could be hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. And they don't have that available to just go start spending. But what I do is I give them a roadmap. This year, do these things for free that you can do for free. Policy changes, training changes, uh, positioning of people, whatever it is. Next year, budget for cameras. A year after that, budget for something else. You know, you, you, you go, And then when you get to court, they'll say, yes, we knew this could happen. And here's what we did. We had an assessment and we have a plan. That's going to help you liability-wise. Now... I hate talking about liability because we're talking about people losing their lives or being permanently injured. But this is a reality for every business owner, every school, every place out there. Uh, it's, it's a reality of, of functioning is that you have to think about these things. All right. So when we look at this, he entered the school within a minute. That's because he got in the back of the school, opened the door and went in. Within three minutes of the subject's entry into the school, 11 law enforcement officers from the Uvalde Consolidated Independent School District and the Uvalde local police, uh, including supervisors, arrived inside the school. So think about that. From the first time he gets in the school, within three minutes, there's 11 law enforcement personnel on scene. That's amazing. That's a very, very fast response. Now, unless you have police SROs, school resource officers in your building, or you have armed security in your business, uh, three minutes could be a very, very fast response time, unless you're lucky enough to have somebody walking by, an officer walking by or driving by and they know something's going on. That's a whole nother story. We'll talk about that another time. But in this case, they had 11 officers arrive. Five of the first responding officers on the scene heard gunfire and they ran towards room 111 and 112. The other six officers did not advance down the hallway, including Acting Chief Mariano Pargas, who was in the best possible position to start taking command. So one of the things that fell apart was you had two different police departments. The school district had its own department and you had the local police. And the people that were there that should have taken charge didn't necessarily take charge the right way. But we can say, okay, within three minutes, there's shooting going on, people are dying. We have 11 officers and five of them went down the hallway towards the fire. Why didn't, why didn't all 11 go down the hallway? That would be my question. And that was a question that they came up with here in this report. All right, so the officers get up there. Um, one of the officers, there's tape, they can hear body, body uh, cameras and all that. Uh, they're trying to coordinate their approaching personnel. One of the officers said to line up and make entry within seconds 
there were gunshots fired from inside the room. Now, maybe the killer heard them outside and took shots at them. Right? Two of the officers got hit by shrapnel, and all of the officers that were there responded to positions of cover. Nobody moved forward. So they stopped at the door. Right? And this is one of the big problems. After three attempts to approach the classrooms, the focus of the responders shifted from entering the rooms and stopping the shooter to evacuating other classrooms. Now, this was a leadership decision. Uh, a guy shot at the door, and two officers were hit by shrapnel, and they pulled everybody back, and a decision was made, okay, we can't get in that room because he's shooting at us. So let's evacuate everybody around that, those classrooms, get them out of here, and keep them safe. That was the, the police chief of the Uvalde School District. That was his overwhelming response every time he was asked. I wanted to protect those people around them, but nobody went in. Now you say to yourself, well, why the hell would you go in, Lieutenant Joe? There's a guy in there with a rifle shooting at you. Of course you can't get in. Well, this is what puts us at odds with what an active shooter response is supposed to be you are supposed to there were children in that room and teachers that were dying and this is the moment when i had to teach these officers these new practices when active shooter response came in that said this is the moment you must move forward now how do you move forward as best as you can tactically do you kick open the door and then rush in do you uh, well if you had shields that would be very good well they spent a lot of time trying to find shields so the lesson we learn here is that our police departments, every police car must be equipped with the information, with the equipment that the officers need to go into an active shooter. So every car should have a rifle, ammunition, they should have uh, breaching tools, they should have a halogen tool which pulls open doors, they should have a shield, a rifle rated shield so that if they had to go forward, the shield could deflect the incoming rounds and the other officers could respond uh, against the target and stop them, right? So this is this is something. Right, we're, we're in, the, in the first couple of pages of this report, and we see amazing things that could have made a complete difference. So, making sure that your police officers are properly equipped is huge. Now, the training we found out they went through this report that some of the officers had some training, other officers had no training, other officers had all different training, and they never trained together. So, if our police don't train together, under a scenario, a realistic training scenario, we're not gonna find our security gaps and our response gaps so that we can fix them. All right, so this is only the first couple of pages here. See, it's so exciting that Arthur, our, uh, our rescue dog here, who wants to be a police dog, is, uh, is barking his brains out. Um, so what they're saying here is that um, the officers said to line up to make entry. The two officers were hit and they retreated. They made three attempts to approach, approach the classroom and the focus changed from entering to evacuating. Now that is, uh, what we've heard a lot about this is that the chief on scene declared this now a barricaded subject or a contained subject is the words that they heard. What is a barricade subject? Why is it different than an active shooter? This is a question that we do not have national standards across the country for dealing with this. Uh, each county, each local police department has their own things. We, we need to come to some understanding. And this is where police liability comes in. This is where immunity comes in. So the reality is, if, if I ran up and somebody was shooting at people, and they see me coming, and they put the gun down, I arrest them. I take them into custody. If they surrender, they put the gun down. I don't just then shoot them because they were an active shooter 15 seconds ago. They put the gun down. They surrendered, right? You can't execute somebody. You take them into custody. 
But if that person runs and goes and locks themselves into a room by themselves, that's the key, by themselves, and they lock the door or barricade the door, now they're a barricaded subject. We don't just shoot through the door to kill them. If they're not hurting anyone else uh, other than potentially themselves, they're now barricaded. The threat to everyone else is over. That's where it changes to a barricaded subject. In this case, in Uvalde, he went into a room with teachers and students and he was shooting sporadically. Initially, a lot of fire. And then as time went by, it was more sporadic. But then we had people in the room calling from uh, room 111 or 112 saying, hey, there's a guy in here, he's killed people. My teacher's bleeding, my teacher's dying. And still they didn't go in. Now, I'm telling you, when they talk about you know, going in, they, they didn't have shields. Could they have found some piece of steel or something in the school, a custodian could have brought them that they could use as a makeshift steel a shield. I don't know. Maybe they could have. You know, I'm sitting here now, two years after the fact, and I'm trying to understand what would I have done. You know, and the reality when people say that is that I'm I'm thinking what I hope I would do. I hope I would do the right thing. I hope I would think that and say, Hey, Mr. Custodian, do you have a piece of steel here? You know, what? How much steel does it take to block a rifle shot? probably a half inch. Do they have a half inch piece of steel plate laying around? I don't know. But the bottom line is they chose not to go in. They were evacuating and the chief on scene said, okay, he's in there. He's locked in. He's now a barricaded subject. Now you, you start to negotiate with the barricaded subject. The problem is, is that he kept shooting at people in the room. Therefore, he was not really a barricaded subject. He might have been barricaded and locked in the room, but that's not how we treat him. To get the difference, there's a difference in the concept and a philosophy. If he was in there still shooting people, had victims who were dying, he's still an active shooter. And we have to do everything in our power to get into that room and stop him and get those victims out of there. And unfortunately, they did not do that uh, in Uvalde. The officers stayed outside for quite a period of time. There was confusion on the leadership, who was in command. So Chief Arandando was the chief of the Uvalde Police Department. He was considered in this report since he was the chief of the school police department and he was on scene, uh, one of the first people there, that he was the head of the operation, even though there was a township police department there. Uh, Texas Rangers were coming, all these different people were coming, but what did we talk about a timeline? The timeline was almost over. So he's in there making these decisions, he's a barricade now, back out, back out. The chief had trouble communicating with all the other agencies because the chief had two radios he carried, a local township police radio so he can communicate with the township police and his school radio so he can talk to his officers in the school district. He was the chief of the school district police department, a separate entity from Uvalde Township Police. And the chief, when he got out of his car in the uh, Texas congressional report says he dropped his radios and left them there. Now, why did he drop them? Was he nervous? He was running into an active shooter situation? Who knows? But in the final report here from the Department of Justice, they say he abandoned his radios and his reason was he didn't think he needed them. Now, he was communicating with all these different agencies, his dispatch and everybody, through a cell phone and by yelling messages to other officers there. We had a confusion on who was the leadership, who should have taken command, who should have done what. So the question that comes up, we had heard that parents were starting to gather. And in the transcripts, you can see the minute by minute, uh, they are setting up transcripts. The chief sets up a place at the funeral parlor across the street. 
uh, where the action actually started. When the killer crashed his car, he shot at those people. They called 911, and that's why the cops were coming in the first place, not because of the school shooting. But he said, set up a, uh, a reunification place over at the funeral parlor so that we could a command post over there so we can do all our business from over there. And he was worried about that, but he was not in the mind of an active shooter, that this was an active shooter going on. It was now a barricade, so it slows down. Everything slows down. This is more akin, as I was saying, to what we did prior to 1999 at Columbine and prior. Just like that movie, I Can Make You Love Me, the cops stood outside and said, we can't go in. It's too dangerous. We got the SWAT team coming. We'll negotiate with them. That is the old-fashioned response. And that is what happened here in Uvalde. And it was, uh, it, it was one of the many things that caused problems uh, for everyone who was involved here. All right, let's see if we can go back here and see some more. All right, so Chief Arandando directed officers at several points to delay making entry into the rooms in favor of searching for keys and clearing other classrooms. All right, so this is a, a huge point. He delayed, and this is from the report, he delayed, he directed officers to delay making entry while he looked for master keys so we could unlock the door. Our training tells us we have to get in immediately to respond to the shooter. So much so that myself and many other training officers across the country have taught our police officers that if you arrive at a facility, a building, a school, whatever, and there's an active shooter inside and you find that the doors are locked, you don't have a key, you can't get in, you smash the door open. And if you have to use the police car to do that, you do it. Smash the door open and get in there because the urgency the urgency that's required to save lives is you got to get to that shooter. Every time you hear a gun, a gun uh, shot, that's another person being injured or killed. So therefore, speed is of the essence, timing. So I have coined a phrase that I use all the time. It's called time equals life. The longer it takes, the more life you're going to lose. The faster you go, the more life you're going to save. Time equals life. So this chief had told his people not to go in there. Don't breach the door. Don't kick it in. Don't do whatever. Let's get the keys and go in. And then let's get people around us out of here. That was his, uh, that was his plan. All right, so that obviously didn't work out in the long run. They could not find enough equipment. They didn't have shields on hand. They had some shields, but they were not rifle rated, which means if you got a rifle shot through it, um, you could get shot and killed. It would go through it. So as we look back on Uvalde, and this is just the, the tip of the iceberg uh, of this report. I'll go through it some more in the future. We'll, we'll keep looking at it as I digest it. I'm going to be doing some bigger programs on it. I might do a webinar. Um, I will talk to the, to the great Malcolm out loud about maybe we put the webinar up on the station and available to you. We'll see how if we can do that. But I'll be working on that. The lessons learned out of here is, uh, is e are easily seen when it comes to training. We must all train together with our schools. We must train together with other police departments because the reality is not just going to be your department that responds to this. In most of these instances, hundreds of officers eventually get at the location, usually not in time to do anything, but they come to help. So we have to train together, practice, we have to practice realistically, right? We can't just do a lockdown drill in our, our school, church, or business uh, to check off a box and say, well, we did the lockdown drill. There you go, right? No, you have to do it under stress. You have to do it, practice it realistically, uh, and think of multi-optional responses. So these are the kind of things that I try and press into my training when I do it. So our lessons learned, leadership is important. Right? And we see this really contrasted with the Covenant school shooting 
in Nashville that took place um, kind of recently. This is where um, this individual, this guy went in. He shot out the glass a couple of rounds, and there's video of it. You can see it online. He shoots a couple of rounds, and the glass in the doors drop. It's a double double door vestibule. The glass was not protected. The doors were locked. They had cameras. They had lockdown systems, but their glass was not protected. Two shots through the glass. The glass drops, and the killer, he walks in. He's walking around the school, and he's shooting people, and there's lots of video. But when we see the police response to this, what is markedly different, different here in how the Nashville police officers handled this was they got on scene, the officer that was there, and I, I can't remember his first name at the moment, but he was, uh, his body cam was on, and you could hear him barking out orders, staying calm, staying in command. People from the school were yelling where the guy was, here's where the shooter is, and he's giving orders to the other officers. And the interesting things we see, we see the officers responding as a team going towards that gunfire quickly, as quickly as they possibly could. There's even a moment where one of the officers slows down because he's a human being and his rifle fire and this officer pushes him, go, 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 you have to go. And all of them move up the hallway. They get to the second floor and they hear the gunfire. Now they're going directly into rifle fire, which will kill you, but this is what we're trained to do, right? They go into this room and there's the killer in there and he shoots at them, they shoot at him and they take out the, uh, the killer. They kill the killer and put an end to the, to the event. But when you compare how Nashville cops handled this and how the Uvalde cops handled this, you start to see the difference in training, in practice, in on-scene leadership, and what people will do to protect other people. So this is where uh, I look at those two, and it's, it's very important. Go read the report. I'm going to do a couple of more presentations on this. I'll go through that report more in depth as we go through this uh, because it's important for us to hear all these things and learn all of this. So listen, I, I say a prayer for all of us here in America because that's not the last one. There will be more. There was just Perry, Illinois. Um, there, there will be more. It's, it's just the reality. We have to all be prepared. We have to be aware and prepared. So keep that in mind. All right, everybody. Until the next time, be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem.